Hello and welcome to Come Back When the Leaves Are Green. This is the podcast which accompanies Orthopaedic Research UK's intensive one-day course in paediatric orthopaedics for the FRCS Orth exam. The next date for this course is the 25th of March. I'm Gavin Spence. I'm an orthopaedic surgeon specialising in children's practice. Currently, I work at King's College Hospital in Dubai. And joining me from London, Michaelis Kokonakis, my friend and colleague and hip expert, also a paediatric orthopaedic surgeon, Hi, Michaelis. I don't know how you feel about DDH. This is the topic we were going to talk about today. I thought I had this all sussed as a registrar, and now I've been a consultant for a few years. I realize there's even more controversy than perhaps I realized. It, has that been your experience? The more you learn, the more confusing it gets in a way? Hi, everyone, and thanks so much for this, Gavin. Absolutely. So as with many other subjects in pediatric orthopedics, DDH is another huge controversy huge controversy when it comes to risk factors, management, diagnosis, and we can talk about this for for hours. But maybe we can take the opportunity within the next half an hour and trying to um, update about all the new stuff about DDH and see if we can make it clearer. And we hope then that most of those who listen to us they will attend the very intensive course we have coming on the 25th of March where we can discuss very much into detail things such as DDH and other common pediatric orthopedic conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think dealing with controversy is something that we have a podcast on in this series so people can go and listen to that. In fact, we talk about DDH a little bit in that one too. And the other important thing I think is that we spend a lot of time talking about the facts and getting the facts right and not nearly enough time talking about how to present yourself in a viva. And hopefully we can maybe give you some pointers in the next half an hour on that. So just to give you an example, Michaelis, I was recently teaching on Orthopaedic Research UK viva practice. So no teaching, it was just viva practice. And I showed a candidate a picture of a pavlic harness and the candidate's correctly identified it as a pavlic harness, but this is what he said to me. I, I asked him simply to comment, you know, here's a picture of, of a medical device. Can you tell me what this is? And he said, this is a pavlic harness. This is treatment for DDH. This can be used for Ortolani and Barlow positive hips. That's hip instability. I would test the child for this. I would also take a full focused history. I would examine the child for spinal dysraphism. And so it went on. I could not get a word in edgeways. We have another fantastic podcast in this series from our friend Rishi Deer, who is something of an expert on, on how to present yourself in Vivas. And he makes the point that you've got to consider it more like a job interview than you do an invitation to discuss facts. And I said to this candidate, just, just stop, stop, stop a minute. Imagine I'm in a job interview. I've asked you a question and you answer the question and you just keep talking and I cannot get a word in one way or the other. I'm not going to give you the job, am I? So it has to be a conversation that flows. So that was kind of the inspiration for this podcast today. I think we have to get across to folks that there is controversy. That means that there are not right or wrong answers necessarily. And don't be afraid to enter into that conversation with an examiner. I mean, we could talk about screening, for example. That's something that an examiner might ask you about. I believe that the consensus statement from BISCOS, the British Society for Children's Orthopaedic Surgery, has come out with a statement on this. Is that correct? They have. And this was early of 2022. They came with the BISCOS consensus for developmental hip dysplasia. 
So at the moment, when it comes to screening, we have the clinical examination of the newborns at uh, the first one to three days. And there's also a six to eight week community clinical examination. So currently, there are risk factors as identified by the NICE guidelines. Specifically, they're called NIPI, or some people call them NIPI, Newborn Infant Physical Examination, where the three risk factors to have an ultrasound scan of the hips are first-degree family history, bridge position, and clinical instability. Now, they keep updating those NIPI guidelines. The most recent update from 2021 dictates that if there is any of those three risk factors, then an ultrasound scan of the hips needs to be arranged between four to six weeks of age, which is in contrary to what we used to do and what some departments still do in the United Kingdom, where when we have uh, clinical instability uh, the first few days of life, then we used to get an ultrasound scan within two weeks. And only if you had a breech position or a first degree family history, then we would get an ultrasound scan at six weeks. So the DDH, PISCOS DDH consensus said that we should really carry on getting the ultrasound scan on those newborns who have clinical instability within two weeks rather than six weeks. And it has not been published yet, but the, uh, the consensus behind this is that if you uh, leave it for six weeks, a clinical unstable hip, then you might end up with bad results. You might end up with failures of public harness. And this is where this comes from. Although this is just a recommendation. It's not evidence-based, not published evidence-based, but there are a few presentations, podium presentations at the annual meeting of BISCOS, as well as the EPOS, the European Pediatric Orthopedic Society meeting. Yeah, so I think one of the misconceptions that I see amongst some candidates is that there is an understanding that Pavlik Harness is good treatment, and they will say 85% successful. That sounds pretty good. But I think what is not appreciated is that might be true for Barlow-positive hips, but Ortolani-positive hips are a different beast entirely, and their outcome with Pavlik Harness is not nearly so good. And I think the concern is that if we were to leave scanning these hips until six weeks, the Ortolani-positive ones, you know, we're, we're really affecting the, the results in an adverse way. Is that your understanding as well? Absolutely. This is very true. So I wish that when they say abnormal clinical examination, the national guidelines, they would differentiate between Barlow and Ortolani. And, and, and just for the listeners, Barlow positive test is where you have a reduced hip, which is dislocatable, while Ortolani is a dislocated hip, which is reducible. The problem, Gavin, is that this clinical examination at most centres in the United Kingdom does not take place by pediatric orthopedic surgeons. It takes place by midwives and sometimes the SHOs on these wards. So they're not, because the national guidelines also talk about this small group of expert examiners in the maternity setting. But most of the times that's far from reality. So you see, we know that 90%, so 9-0, of the newborns with positive bilo test will normalize within six weeks. 
So you do not need to start a public harness treatment at two weeks. But we also know that if you have an ortolani positive test, up to 40% of these children who are treated with public harness, they will fail. So that means they will need a closer and open induction. So it's completely two different clinical findings with completely different uh, prognosis. Yeah. So in the exam situation, how do you think a candidate can keep out of trouble if they're asked when they would time an ultrasound scan to confirm their clinical findings? It's a very good question. And they will ask, if a DDH comes there, the examiner will ask about this. So I think the ideal answer would be that there are the NIPE guidelines. These are the three risk factors, as we discussed. And then they dictate that an ultrasound scan of the hips should be performed at four to six weeks of life. But um, at the same time, there's viscous uh, consensus and there's a lot of orthopedic surgeons who follow that consensus where for the clinically unstable hips, they uh, do an ultrasound scan within two weeks. So this is a prime example of the controversy in DDH. We have two sets of national guidelines with slightly different pieces of advice. But look at it this way, you know, if you're if you are familiar with that argument, if you're familiar with why orthopedic surgeons are concerned about leaving an ultrasound until six weeks, and you can explain that in Aviva, I mean you're you're flying, right? I mean that's that's the whole point of Aviva. This is my point about getting the conversation going. Absolutely. And one other thing that we need to mention is that although the NIPE guidelines talk about the three risk factors, the viscous DDH steering group also says that newborns with feet deformities should also have an ultrasound scan within six weeks. And it's important to mention this. This statement is based on large cohort studies. There's a very recent one published in BJJ in 2020 from Norway on over 60,000 children that showed that there's a statistically significant association of feet deformities, mainly metatarsodactus, calcaneo valgus and club feet for a development of DDH. And I think that's also something that we should mention when somebody asks you about the NIPE guidelines, when to do and when not to do an ultrasound scan. Yeah. And I've had to change my tune on what I taught before about club foot. Club foot is now considered to be a risk factor for DDH. And there is a consensus statement again from Viscos, the British Society of Children's Orthopaedic Surgery, that says all children presenting with idiopathic clubfoot should have an ultrasound scan to rule out DDH. To make things more confusing or more entertaining, Viscos DDH steering group also mentioned on their consensus, which, by the way, it is available to everyone. You can go online and read it. Viscos advocates for universal ultrasound screening, which is like a 180 degree turn to what we've been saying about the importance of selective screening. So this is completely against the NIP guidelines. So BISCOS recommend that future randomized clinical trials are necessary to compare universal with selective screening. And then the other very important thing is because even when it comes to the ultrasound scan itself, there's different ways how you perform those scans And it seems that the graph ultrasound scan becomes now the gold standard within the UK. Graph is a very complicated system. 
It's been very, very carefully thought out. It has a lot of evidence based behind it. But we talk in the course, don't we, and, and on these podcasts about how the FRCS auth exam is an examination where you're required to have a breadth of knowledge rather than necessarily a depth. How much detail do you think a candidate would be expected to know about the graph classification? My feeling would be, if you mentioned the graph classification and an examiner said, okay, well, what is the graph classification? I'd probably answer that now by saying it is a classification of the different types of disease in developmental dysplasia of the hip. There is a spectrum and accurate measurements are made from static ultrasound scans. And based on these measurements, it can be classified into various severities. And that's what guides treatment. That is the answer I would give because I haven't talked anything about alpha angles, beta angles. Is it less than 60, more than 60? What about the beta angle? I'm just trying to give principles here. And, and I think probably an examiner would accept that as an answer. Would you agree, McCullis, or do you think more details required? I agree. But I presume some examiners, they might throw up an ultrasound scan of, a, let's say, of a dislocated hip, and then he would expect the candidate to draw the, the angle. Talk a bit about this. So, again, the same way that you very nicely summarized what ultrasound scan is, I would say when it comes to alpha angle, this is to show how mature the bony acetabulum is. And an alpha angle more than 55 is regarded as normal. It's more than 60, which is regarded as normal. More than 55, it will become normal within the first six weeks. An alpha angle between 43 and 55 means that we have an immature hip that will need treatment. And in the UK, that's a public harness. And if the alpha angle is less than 43, this implies that we might have an unstable hip. And this is where the main difference comes. If you have an unstable hip on the ultrasound scan or in the clinical examination, so that means that you have to initiate, of course, public harness, but you just need to check it again in a couple of weeks' time, no more than three or four weeks' time, to make sure that the hip is in, because otherwise you end up with the problem of the public harness disease. This is where the hip is stuck outside the hip joint, and that can create a bigger problem. So this is where you have to do something different. So you have to stop the public harness treatment and go probably for a trial-closed reduction. Yeah, so you're talking here about an Ortolani positive hip that you've tried to treat in a pavlic harness. You have repeated the ultrasound within, what, one, two weeks? This is controversial. So some people say one week. Uh, we do it at the Evelina London within two weeks, but you shouldn't live more than three or four weeks because you do more harm than benefit. And that's, that's the main thing. That's what the examiner wants to hear from you. Yeah, so if you repeat this ultrasound and you find that the hip is still dislocated, it has not centered, then you have to abandon the pavlic harness treatment. And then the examiner's next question is going to be, so, okay, this closed reduction that you say you want to do, when are you going to do it? You're going to do it now or you're going to wait? This is a very good question. And, and, and some there are some centers, we have to say, that when they stop pavlic harness treatment, which is a soft harness, they might try a rigid harness something similar to the von Rosen splint, for example. But you don't have to say that, but it just gives you the extra bonus because there are some studies with low number of patients that say that these can have better results. When to do the close reduction? It's a very good question. Well, you can do it whenever. 
whenever you want. I don't think there is any specific uh, reason why you should wait. Uh, for years, when we were trained, Gavin, everybody was talking about the protective role of the ossific nucleus. So basically, you had to wait for the ossific nucleus to appear, mainly before doing an open reduction, but sometimes before you do a closed reduction. And we know that this is not the case anymore. There is evidence to suggest that you don't have to wait. So you can do it at any time after you find out that the pavlihanus does not work. You can do it at four months, at six months, at nine months. I had babies that I did the close reduction at the age of 18 months, up to two years, and it went in, and I did that. Although, in general, with time, I've been now nine years as a consultant, I think I have a much lower threshold to go ahead with an open reduction rather than a close reduction. Is that how your practice has developed over the years, Gavin? I think I probably still do more closed reductions than you. I know people are concerned that even if you can get the hip in, the dysplasia doesn't resolve. But this just illustrates the differences between <coughs> us. And, you know, there's not a right and wrong answer. But just to go back to what you said about failed pavlik harness. So I think what happens to candidates, particularly those who don't have that much experience, they have said that they've got an Ortolani positive hip. It has not gone in. They have correctly told the examiner that they're going to abandon the pavlik harness treatment. And then there's that rabbit in the headlights moment when the examiner says, so when are you going to do it? And you think to your algorithm and you think, well, close reduction is after six months, isn't it? So is it right to do a close reduction in a three, four month old? Well, you have explained that. The answer is you can. I think one of the reasons it was delayed in the past was because of anesthetic reasons as well. You work in a hospital where it's no problem anesthetizing very young children. Not everybody works in that kind of scenario. One of the things also, just before we move on, first degree relatives. First degree relatives means mum, dad, or siblings. Correct? Not cousins, not second aunt twice removed. That's the only relevance. First degree relatives. That's it. Nothing more than that. All right. So the whole point about these screening programs is to avoid late diagnosis of DDH. And by late diagnosis, well, what do we mean by late diagnosis? I think we mean anything that cannot be treated with a public harness. So Older than six months, would that count as late diagnosis? Probably would. Correct. Uh, it is not acceptable to treat with harness any uh, baby over six months. And the main reason are the, the high complications. So you can get femoral nerve palsy mainly. So um, the late onset DDH, again, is another controversial term. So I'll give an example. So, for example, in a country like the UK, where we do selective screening, where there's a lot of controversy about the risk factors to get an ultrasound scan, have we missed that child and he presents at year one with a dislocated hip? Or does late diagnosis really exist? That means the dysplasia of the hip develops later. Because if you have a look at a country like Germany, where they have universal screening, they still get DDH. They still get late diagnosis, you mean? Yeah, they still get DDH. And they say because our universal screening is so good, so we do not miss any children, the DDH develops later. Now, we don't know. Whatever it is, if we miss it or not miss it, we still need to have all those healthcare professionals that deal with children, and I'm talking about physiotherapists, GPs, us seeing children in the clinic. We always have to have on the back of our minds that examine uh, the hips and any concerns and get an x-ray to make sure that there's no DDH there. Sure. So 
By DDH, we're talking here about a hip dislocation, a frank dislocation. When, when you face that kind of situation, certainly in a walking child, this is a hip that is never going to be normal. And I think that's an important point to get across. The only chance you really have of getting a normal hip is if you treat it in early infancy with a harness. Anything else, that hip is going to be time limited. But then comes the whole controversy about how you treat it. I mean, I know we do go into this in the course in some detail. You know, people need to have some sensible things to say that are not controversial. They're not going to cause the examiner to give them a long, hard look over the half glasses. So can you give us a sort of flavor of your approach to this, Michalis, in terms of age and the principles that guide you to decide whether you do closed reduction, open reduction, and perhaps we can get onto osteotomies as well? Thanks, Gavin. But also, I want to add... If any of the candidates has already done a pediatric orthopedic rotation, then they should just say during the exam what they've seen, what they experienced, and say, well, that is what I've seen, and this is where I've done that. Or if you haven't done a pediatric orthopedic rotation, then say what you read in the textbook or what you had in courses or podcasts like ours. So in general, I would say DDH identified within the first six months will be treated with some kind of a harness, the different harnesses there. Over six months, we say usually from six months to 18 months, this is where you have to do either a closed reduction or if that fails, you have to do an open reduction. When it comes to closed reductions, there are different ways how you do this in terms of are you going to do adductor tenotomies? What about the Ramsey safety zones? How long are you going to leave the hip spiker? Is this going to be followed up by braces? And then will you do an arthrogram or not? Again, that's controversial and different people have different practices. In general, what we do at the Avellina London is we start with an arthrogram. And if there is concentric closed reduction, then we check the safety zones of Ramsey. Basically, we need the hip to be able to safely AB duct between 45 to 60. If that's not the case, we have to do a pecutanus adductor tenotomy. And then we put a hip spiker. The hip spiker itself, the different ways how you do it, for unilateral DDH, I go long leg on the affected leg and above knee on the other side and the hip spiker comes up to the nipples. We would change the hip spiker at six weeks. Uh, we would leave it in general for three months and then we would apply hip abduction brace for three months. And that's with the closed reduction. If the closed reduction fails, if there is, for example, a non-concentric reduction on the arthrogram or if the closed reduction later on fails, then you have to do an open reduction there's the medial open reduction, there's the anterior open reduction. Not many people advocate the medial open reduction, firstly because it's, it's a challenging procedure. It has been associated with increased risk of avascular necrosis, and you can only do it within the first year of life, not after. So I personally do medial open reductions, but not many people do. It is more common to do an anterior open reduction, this is where more controversies come when to do the anterior open reduction. Again, the same principles apply. You don't have to wait for nine months or a year or for the civic nucleus to appear to do this. You can do it anytime from four months onwards. There's published literature on this, especially from Europe. This is the, the Smith-Peterson's approach. And then you have to put a, a hip spiker for six weeks. 
the newest tendency, and this is what I do now for my practice, when the child is 12 or 13 months, I discuss with parents, we wait until the child is 18 months, and I do an anterior open reduction with a pelvic ostotomy, either a Salter or a Pemberton. I don't to make it very surgically heavy now, but we can discuss the different ostotomies, uh, pros and cons in the course. But there is good evidence suggests that once you do both, you deal with this in a more effective way because there's a high risk of children who have only anterior open reductions that later on when they're between four and six years of age where they need the pelvic ostotomy. And it also makes it very um, scary, I would say, for the parents. They come every year and they ask you, so what is the acetabular index? Do we need to have a pelvic ostotomy? Well, if you do this at 18 months, it's better, I think, even for the surgeon, but also for the parents. And that's what I do. And certainly this is evidence-based. Okay, that's very interesting. But that does mean that you have a child who is potentially walking around on a dislocated hip and you're saying it's fine? I'm going to deal with this when they're 18 months old. You know, that takes a lot of trust on behalf of the parent that you have to build. It's, it's difficult. And, and, and certainly, as you say, Gavin, there's, there are a lot of parents out there who just not going to take it. They, they're just not, not going to take, take that offer. And they will, uh, they will either find another surgeon to do the anterior open reduction or they convince you to do it there and then. Yeah. Well, I think we have discussed quite a few controversies. I think we've probably given people a flavor of what these controversies are. On the course, we'll go into a lot more detail and give you some some safe things to say and some good conversations and some principles to to think about so you can engage with the examiner and have that conversation with them that I was talking about at the start of the podcast. So I hope that's been useful information for everybody. The course is on the 25th of March. So if you want to come along to that, sign up for that and we'll cover DDH and, well, you can see the program. All all of the major topics in paediatric orthopaedics, we should give you some pointers to keep you out of trouble. So I hope that's been helpful. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll have your company on the next podcast in the series. Goodbye.